theyeshiva.net. Thank you very much, Rabbi Kesselman. Purushus all the Rabbonim, Goedim, Rashi Shivas, Mashpia, Mechanchem, Rabbis, Rabbitsons, friends, brothers and sisters, the entire community, ladies and gentlemen, Bruchim Abayim, and thank you for the invitation, thank you for the privilege, thank you, Rabbi Reichik, for extending the invitation. It's amazing how you put this together within a, a few days, and uh, I'm really thrilled to be here. Now, I thought when I was uh, flying to Los Angeles today that my topic is Yutzvat Tovshin Pei. But uh, as I landed and I heard the news about Kobe Bryant, I come to uh, offer condolences from uh, the entire East Coast Jewish community to all my brethren, because I see that uh, in California today there is no other topic being spoken about besides the tragedy, the helicopter tragedy, which claimed the life of Kobe Bryant, his 13-year-old daughter, and uh, the other seven victims. And uh, he was obviously a basketball star of the West Coast of California. And like everything, the Baal Shem Tov says, everything you hear and you see is a lesson. And perhaps... A lesson from uh, this person is, number one, you have to learn how to be a player and not a spectator. To be involved and not just a fan. And number two, another great quality of Kobe Bryant, he was a unifier, a grand unifier. I have an older brother, some of you know him, Rabbi Simon Jacobson. And he shared with me once that uh, on Simchas Torah, every year on Simchas Torah, those of you who remember the geography of 770 Eastern Parkway on Simchas Torah, know there was a phenomenon called the Ches. The Ches was tables that were set up in the shape of a Ches. Of course, a Ches has an opening on the bottom, that's where the Bima was. And people would go around the bima with the Sifri Torah. When the Rebbe would have his Akafa, Aleph and Seven, Akafa One, Akafa Two, he would obviously also go around the bima and then dance in middle with the three, four, five, eight, nine, in my days, 10,000 people who were suspended from air conditions, ceilings, pillars, beams. It was one of those situations that if you would drop a pin, it literally would not fall to the ground, and people actually did it. If you needed a place, you somehow climbed up to a roof, you jumped down, and you remained suspended, sometimes for 20 minutes, sometimes for a half an hour, until somebody in their great grace decided to let you uh, land. The heat was rising, the vapor was rising, and my brother told me, as a child, he sat over there by the tables, just a few feet away from the Rebbe dancing on the floor with dozens and dozens or hundreds of other children. When he became a mitzvah, and you know you become a mitzvah and you put on that funny black hat that usually goes down till your ears and your nose, and he put on that hat 
and you're 13, you're an adult, you're mature, you don't want to sit with the little children and fight with them on the ground. So he went with some of my Lipska uncles that had a place on the bleachers on the east side of 770, on the east coast. The Ches was on the west coast. That's where the action is, on the west coast. But on the east coast, there were bleachers on the wall. And he stood on one of those bleachers as a 13-year-old you know, to survey the situation from the bleachers. The Rebbe started to dance the Hakafas in the middle. And those who remember know that during the Hakafas, the Rebbe would make eye contact with every single individual in the room, in the shul, even if it was 8,000 people, even for a second, he would make eye contact with every single person. You often saw that he was searching for somebody. He looked and looked, and then he was satisfied. It was, it was a phenomenon to behold. Besides, of course, the simcha of the Torah, you saw what a Yid, who's one with Torah, dances like, taught you what Torah is, what Yiddishkeit is. Middle of the dancing, the Rebbe sees my father, my late father, Zechrena Levrach. And he turns to him and he says, Who is, who is the Zun? Where is your son? He always fabrings with us here on the floor. He points some chastaira. As Nishta is not here. So my father said, There is Da. And he says, I'm a fetish of the bleachers. He went to his uncles on the bleachers, and my father knew where he was. He pointed to the bleachers to show the Rebbe that my 13-year-old brother, you know, didn't skip uh, the event. <laughs> he was there, he was there. So the Rebbe looked up, he turns to my father and says, Ah, Eshen Eugevoden a spectator. He has also, alas, become another spectator. As euch geworden noch a spectator, in Yiddish, a spectator. There are two types of people. There are players and there are spectators. Spectators enjoy the game. Spectators are part of the game. They even pay a lot of money to get a good seat. But they don't have their skin in the game. It's somebody else's game. I think we all suffer sometimes from that challenge. It's the Balshemtov's game. It's the Alter Rebbe's game. It's the Rebbe's game. It's Rebekiva's game. It's Rashi's game. It's the Rambam's game. We're the spectators. We stand on the bleachers and go, yeah, 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 Kobe, go, Kobe, yeah. With a different name, Lahavdu. <clears throat> then we really miss the boat because the atom to look to echad echad means the Mishnah says in Sanhedrin 37 everyone is obligated to say for me the world was created now if you don't understand that Mishnah it seems like a symptom of narcissistic personality disorder go into your therapist and tell them I decided the world was created for me. I know people who tell this to their wives pretty often. And they even open up a Mishnah. They say, I don't say it, the rabbi said it. <laughs> the only problem with that is, you should answer him is, the rabbi say it about you too. So it works both ways. But really it's the furthest thing from arrogance. 
it represents the exact opposite. That there's something at stake in every single person's life. That there's something about you and about me. That if I and you don't fulfill our mission, the whole world is incomplete. The whole world is incomplete. In other words, Chayev Adam Loimar, for me, the world was created because there's something at stake in my existence, in your existence, that nobody before and nobody after, even the greatest of the great, even the Rebbe Bechvoide Biatzmai, all the Rebbe's, all the G'dayli Yisrael of all the generations, can't complete. So you have to ask yourself a question Am I the spectator or am I a player? Am I a unifier or am I a divider? And in today's day and age, there's only two options. Either you're part of the problem or you're part of the solution. Jews love kvetching. It's what we do for a living. If you find somebody who's not kvetching, it's a shayla of the Yiddishkeit. A Jew kvetches. How you doing? I think I'm having a stroke. How you doing? I almost died yesterday. I think I'm dying tomorrow. I'm in the middle of a heart attack. I have backache. I don't know what happened trying to eat, I can't eat, I'm gaining weight, I don't know why, etc. We sigh. There comes a time in life you have to decide, am I going to sigh about problems or am I going to be part of the solution? There's only one of two options. <laughs> the Rebbe used to quote his father-in-law, life is a cliff. Some people like to say a ski slope. Either I'm going up or I'm going down. Either I'm part of the problem or I'm part of the solution. Either I'm a spectator I sit back, drink Coca-Cola, eat popcorn, french fries with ketchup, and if I don't like how the game is going, I go home early. Or, I'm a player. There's only one of two options. Either I'm a unifier, I'm an ambassador of unity, I'm an ambassador of love, and I'm an ambassador of bittel, or I become an ambassador of kvetching and sighing and complaining and divider, division and fragmentation within myself. So these are qualities that you could learn from the celebrity who fills every news web, every newscast, and not only the news at the head of the hour, the top of the hour, but literally every moment, at least since I landed in this wonderful city of Los Angeles. There's an old anecdote, it's one of my favorites about a fellow who came from the Atlantic, the other side of the Atlantic, to America. He was born in Pinsk. Pinsk is a city in uh, Lithuania, Belarus. Depends who won the war that Wednesday. He came from Pinsk to America. Now, in Pinsk, he was known as a shlamazel. You know what a shlamazel is? Huh? If you don't, you'll Google it. You'll figure it out. <laughs> he was a shlamazel. He came to America. He decided he wants to open a new chapter in his life. How do you open a new chapter in your life? He borrowed money. He bought himself a beautiful suit. Extraordinary tie. Nice hat. Exquisite shoes. He decided he's going to present himself as a feinschmecker. As an aristocrat. Goes to shul, Shabbos. He's not going to sit in the back. He's going to sit in the front right near the president and the gabai and the philanthropists. Right there in the front. You carry yourself with dignity. People respect you. But then he thought to himself, it's not enough. And then he had a great idea. You know, the Gabbai always looks for a Kayan. A Kayan, a Kayan, a Kayan. He'll say he's a Kayan. The moment you say you're a Kayan, you're getting an Aliyah every Monday, every Thursday, every Shabbos. 
benching, you're always being honored. It's a wonderful way to garner respect from the community. Sure enough, before the reading of the Torah, the rabbi says, Koyen, I'm a Koyen. This Jew from Prince gets an Alish. He never got so many Shekoyaks in his entire life in Pinsk. Sits down in the front. The plan worked. He's feeling very good about himself. After Davenik, custom is you go by the rabbi to say good Shabbos, shake a hand. Goes by the Rav. The Rav takes a look. Says, Shmel? From Pinsk? Says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shmel from Pinsk. Wow. You made it. You're alive. You're here in America. Yeah, I'm here. The rabbi says, but I have one question. I remember you from Pesk. I remember you as a child. I remember your father, Olavashalom. I remember your Zedek. I'm Yankel, Olavashalom. When I was a kid, I still remember your elder Zedek, Zundel. They were good Jews. Fine Eden, Ehrlich Eden. But they weren't Koyanim. Most plus of people sort of think about not Koyanim. How do you become a coin suddenly? I have to tell you the answer in Yiddish, my friends. Some things you have to say in Yiddish. I'll translate. He says, Rebbe Hetzelchein, do is Amerik. As Eken sein Arov, Tetik sein Arkoyen. This is America, my dear Rabbi. If you can be a Rov, I can be a Koyen. It works. Chashin It's an anecdote. But there's a profound message here. <laughs> Reminds me, they say, there was once a fellow. He was also a poverty-stricken individual. He used to buy the lottery ticket every week. It was a lottery ticket that went for $365 million. Yeah. Wife, his wife, Sprinzer, calls up the rabbi one day. Says, Rebbe, Sakonas Nefashis, my husband's life is in danger. Says, what happened? What happened, Sprinzer? He won the lottery. $365 million. She says, well, what? Wonderful news. It's wonderful. He says, no, no, I know my husband. He has a weak heart. He's not going to be able to deal with such news. The moment he hears that he won the lottery ticket, he's going to faint. He can have a heart attack. He can expire. He can, who knows what? I'm frightened. I'm frightened for his life. So the rabbi says, you know what? Send him into my office. On the way home, I'll prepare him for the news. I have a way psychologically to prepare people for the news who'll be able to deal with it, be able to handle it. Great. Rabbi, you're the best. Tells her husband, go to the rabbi, he wants to see you after work. He goes into the rabbi, the rabbi, shalom aleichem, aleichem, shalom, how you doing? Rabbi, what gives me the honor? Rabbi says, I just wanted to have a little schmooze with you. How are you doing in Parnassa? How is your livelihood doing? He says, Rabbi, you know... <laughs> I have never had a penny. I never make ends meet. I've been struggling for my entire life. My father struggled. My Zayda struggled. My elder Zayda struggled. All back to other Mauritian by the Eitz <laughs> We were not destined to have mazel. What should I tell you? Every Rosh Hashanah, I daven. But I know, it ain't changing. Rabbi says, come on, a little amune, a little bitachin. God runs the world. Leah Kesef, he wants to give you a couple of dollars, he'll give you. Maybe you should make a pesakeli, maybe you should do a pesahistatlus. He says, yeah, I buy the lottery ticket already 45 years. He says, no. He says, you think I win? People like me don't win. People in Montana win, people in Kentucky, people in Wyoming win. 
people like me, though, he says, why do you buy the lottery? You buy, it's a Jewish thing, you have to buy a lottery ticket. But it's not to win, it's just to complain and lose again. He says, this lottery ticket you bought? Yeah, 365 million, I shouldn't buy it. He says, no, maybe you got the right numbers. Maybe the six numbers are your numbers. He says, let's not go into hallucinations, chaloimus, please, let's be realistic. He says, what? Some Hevriman, uh, Richard Smith the sixth in Kentucky could, could choose the right numbers. Chaim uh, Yankel can't. Maybe you did. He says, why would you want to build up my hopes of something that never happened and never will happen? How can you be sure it never happened? And what if you did win? He says, Rebbe, here's the deal. If I won, you get half. The rabbi fainted, collapsed, had a heart attack. Expired. You see, friends, it's not so easy. It's not so easy to deal with good news. Sometimes people become experts in dealing with challenging news. They don't know how to deal with good news. It's hard for people. Yeah. They say an old story Israel was struggling with its economy years ago. So the Knesset had an emergency meeting. What do we do to build up Israel's economy? Today, Baruch Hashem, is better. Pretty good, actually. So an old man stands up. He says, I have a great idea. Let's learn from Japan and Germany. Let's declare war on the United States of America. What will America do? They'll wipe us out. And then Americans feel guilty. They'll rebuild us into an economic superpower. Look what they did it with Japan. They did it with Germany. That's how we'll save our economy. One Altaid, one older Jew gets up, scratching his forehead, he says, there's one problem. What happens if we win the war? <laughs> this is a problem. Somebody once said, so a professor of Yiddish in Harvard, Ruth Wise, she once said, you know, when a Jew makes a fist, the next step is a shamnu, bagadnu, gazalnu. Other people make a fist, check out your nose by the doctor tomorrow. But a Jew, I make a fist, I'm sorry for living, I'm sorry for existing. It's a mentality. It's a mentality. We know where it comes from. I'm not going to psychologically analyze it at the moment. Sometimes you have to know how to get the good news. And I hear, I share with you an incredible teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. Why am I showing this teaching of the Baal Shem Tov? Everybody knows that when the Rebbe Rayatz, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, whose name I'm privileged to carry, Yosef Yitzchak, passed away Shabbos morning, Parshas Boy, the 10th of Shema, Tovshin Yud, 1950. One day before, he published an essay, a discourse, a mimer. One day before. He published a day, literally one day before his passing, he published a special Torah, a whole full discourse, which began with the verse, the famous verse of Shehashirim, Bosi Legani, Achoisikala. Hashem says, I've come back to my garden to be with my sister, with my Kala, with my bride, with my beloved bride. Bosi Legani. And the headline of the discourse is Shabbos Parshas Boy Yud Shvat Tovshin Yud, because it was the yard site of his grandmother. It is the yard site of his grandmother, Rebbe Rivka, the wife of the 
the Rebbe Reb Shmuel, the fourth Chabad Rebbe. So he published a mimer for his Baba's yard site. Of course, nobody expected that that very day his soul would return to its maker. So some of you know that the Rebbe had a fascinating custom that every year on the yard site of his father-in-law, Yutshva, the Rebbe Rayatz, he would say a discourse that began with this verse, Basilagani. Now the discourse has 20 chapters. So every year, the Rebbe on Yutshvat would focus his own discourse on another chapter. And after 20 years, he finished the whole Mimer. So he started again. That was 1971. He started 1951, first yard site. He finished 1970, the 20th chapter. 71, Tovshin Lamed Aleph, he did the second cycle. That stopped in 1988 when he explained chapter 18. The following few Yutzvats, until his passing, he didn't discuss the Maimon. So the Rebbe did almost two full cycles. According to this cycle, this year, Tovshin Pei, yeah, Tovshin Ayin, 2010, the cycle began again. Because 1990, the second cycle ended. 1970, the first cycle ended. 1990, the second cycle ended. 2010, a new cycle began. And 2020, this year, Yutzvat, we learned the 10th chapter of Basilagane. So I went back to study the Maimon, the Rebbe said, on the 10th chapter of Basilagane, which was Tovshin Chav, 1960. This is Tovshin Pei. This was Tovshin Chav. It's an incredible discourse. Very, very emotional. Very moving. In the middle, the Rebbe broke down, choked up in tears. I'll soon tell you at which piece. But the whole Maimon is very profound on two levels. What we call in Chabad jargon, Haskola and Avoida. Meaning, both in terms of the profound ideas in Yiddishkeit and in the profound emotional relevance of these ideas. Here tonight, I feel that it behooves me, it behooves us, to share at least two fundamental ideas from that Basilagani Tovshin Chav, Basilagani 1960, and its relevance to our lives today, many decades later, as we prepare to commemorate the 70th yard site of the Rebbe Rayatz and the 70th anniversary of that day, Yutzvat, when his son-in-law, the Rebbe, assumed the Nesiyas, the leadership of Chabad. And he quotes the Sefer, Toldus Yaakov Yosef. Toldus Yaakov Yosef is one of the earliest Hasidic works that was written by a man named Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, the Rav of Pulna. He was a student of the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov didn't write his own teachings. So all the teachings that we have from the Baal Shem Tov are from his students' writing. So one of the most reliable sources for who, what the Baal Shem Tov taught comes from Taldus Yaakov Yosef because he was a direct pupil and he transcribed dozens, maybe hundreds of teachings he heard from his Rebbe. So the Rebbe quoted a teaching of the Baal Shem Tov, quite a daring teaching. It's a Gemara in Masech Gitten Daf Nun Vav Amud Aleph. The fifth Perik of Gitten, Perik HaNezokin. The story is well known 
But the interpretation of the Baal Shem Tev is extraordinary. The Gemara tells the story, you know the beginning of the story, it's known as the story of Kamtsa Ba Kamtsa. But what's relevant here is the end of the story. This fellow Bar Kamtsa who was thrown out of a party went to Rome and told the emperor, Mordu The Jews rebelled against you and I'll prove it to you. Send an offering to the temple, they won't sacrifice it. They don't care for the emperor. He sent a wonderful calf, a beautiful calf, and he made a blemish, which for the Gentile world was not called a blemish, but for the Jews it was a mum. The sages get a calf from the emperor of Rome. They take a look and have a blemish. You can't offer it on the base of English. But why can't you offer it? Because there's a posseg in Emmer. We can't offer a blemished animal. But pikuach nefesh, the Gemara says in Yuma, life and death overrides the whole Torah, including sacrificing a blemished animal. We have to sacrifice the blemished calf on the, te- on the altar in the base of Mikdash because of Shalom Malchus. You can't enrage the Roman emperor when Rome ruled Judea with an iron fist. But there was a sage, a Tana. His name was Repscharian Ben Afkilos. And he said, you can't. The world word will go out that we offer blemished animals. We can't. We can't make an exception. We can't do this. So they told Zerchaya, there's one more option, only one more option. Second option is, we have to kill him. He's a monster. If we don't offer the calf, He's going back to Rome. Who knows how many Jews can die because of this man? We have to get rid of him. There's no choice. Ripsaria protested. He said, if we kill him, the rumor will be that if somebody makes a blemish in an animal, in a carbon, matul mumbekachim, gets the death penalty. There's no such a thing. We don't kill people because they made a blemish in a holy animal. Doesn't work that way. So Rabbi Yochanan said these words. An hosnusoi shel schayi ben afkilus. Hechriva es beisenu. Sorfa es heichaleinu vihigla es boneinu. The humility of schayi ben afkilus destroyed our home. Burnt God's sanctuary. And exiled our children. Why does he use the word anvosnusai? Where do you see humility here? You could say the righteousness, the caution, the sensitivity, the indecisiveness, the ambiguity, the fear. Anvosnusai means the another, the humility. We always look at Anova as a wonderful thing. Humility. Anova is one of the qualities at the end of Saita. Humility is a great virtue. The Basilis Yesharim and so many others. Swarim of Musa, Machshav, Mechsidus, Kabbalah, Gemara, Medrash, even Halacha explore the virtue of humility. Anova. The negativity of Gaiva. Anvosnusa. 
So the Mepharshim asked this question. The Moirei Naim has a famous long commentary. What was the humility of Zechariah ben Afkilis? He says that Zechariah ben Afkilis knew that the Beis Hamikdash is destined to be destroyed. But he didn't want to tell anybody that he knows because of his humility. So he found excuses of how to make it happen. The Moirei Naim says, his mistake was he didn't realize that Jews could change every edict in the world. The Vilna Gaon has a famous explanation on, on Vasnusoy, beautiful explanation about how the Sanhedrin used to vote. He was considered the cotton, so therefore he voted at the end. Agan Sabi, an explanation that's beyond the realms of tonight's Shia lecture. But the Balshemtiv gives a psychological interpretation. And the Balshemtiv says, and I quote, I told us Yaakov Yosef, who quotes his teacher, which the Rebbe quotes in Bossi Lagani, Tov Shem 1960, Yud 1960, at the Fabreng in the Maimer, that the Baal Shem Tov says that sometimes humility is responsible for the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, for the decimation of the sanctuary, and for the exile of the children. How? Why? Says the Baal Shem Tov, and I'm going to quote the words of the Toldus, which he heard from his Rebbe, he writes it in Lashon Kodesh, and then I'll explain it. The humility of a person often causes them to become distant from Avodas Hashem, from serving God. Because he or she is so humble, they cannot believe that I, that he or she has the power that through their tefillah, through their Torah, they can change the world. Who am I? I'm a loser. I'm a doormat. I'm a rag. I'm a nobody. I can't believe that my Torah can create a flow, a shefa, a flow to all the worlds. The angels are waiting for you. All the angels want to eat. They need nurture. They need tender love and care. They need nutrition. They need you to give them nutrition. If a person would believe this, how much would a service to Hashem be with tremendous passion, enthusiasm, joy, and awe? says it's even more. It says in Tehillim, say Chazal, Hashem Himself rests between your lips. God hangs out between your lips. Because every time you open your mouth, saying positive words of Torah and Tefillah, He kisses, He kisses your lips, He kisses your words. Who will not be overtaken by a sense of tremendous awe and passion that God in His essence guards, watches, and remains attentive 24 hours to the mouth to the verbal communicativity of a human being. 
The foundation of Judaism must be for a person to say, every one of my movements, all of my relationships, all of my encounters, all of my businesses, and all of my words, change all of the worlds. They create an impression. When you start thinking, who am I? Come on. Stop calling me such a pompous guy. I'm a nobody. I, don't, I can't repair anything above. I can't repair anything below. It sounds holy, but you know what the consequence is? He loses his relationship with his soul, with God. He becomes a frivolous addict. For who may ancha omru razal an vasnusoy shadepscharya gorma churm beis hamikdash? Sometimes the greatest destruction of a beis hamikdash of holiness in people's lives comes from anove shaloibim koima displaced humility. Those four words: mi ani omani. Who am I and what am I? When a person says the Baal Shem Tev, asks himself or herself the question, Who am I to be powerful? Who am I to have influence? Who am I to be successful? Who am I to make a difference? Who am I to change reality? And who am I to be happy? And who am I to have a great relationship with my kids? And with my grandchildren. And who am I to have an awesome marriage? And who am I to be an ambassador of love and light and hope and healing and redemption? And who am I to be gorgeous inside and outside? And who am I to be a beacon of light? This who am I often sounds righteous, holy, even religious and sacred. Especially when there's a little Jewish guilt that comes in, and a little Jewish trauma, and some Jewish toxicity. It almost sounds like a holy question. And what the Bashem is teaching us is that for many of us, the truth is that it's not our darkness that we fear so much, it's not our toxicity that we fear so much. It's not our loneliness and our pain and trauma that we fear so much. You know what we fear even more than our pain? You know what we fear even more than our inadequacy? It's our light that we fear. It's our greatness that we fear. It's making peace with the fact that you are an ambassador of God in this world. That you are a manifestation of infinity in this world. That every movement and every word, every encounter and every experience, you are an ambassador of Ein Soif Bechvaydo Yobiatzmoy. The Baal Shem Tev says, it's not just the angels who look at you. It's God Himself, Hashem Atzmus Ein Soif, that guards your lips and cherishes your choices. When those choices bring yourself and your loved ones and your community and your home and your heart and your world closer to their own truth. People say, deep down, it's often subconscious, and I'm going to ask you to look into your heart right now and ask yourself the question, 
Can you make peace with your infinity? Can you accept that you are as healthy as it gets? You are as holy as it gets. You are as powerful as it gets. Can you once and for all say goodbye to the humility and humbleness that causes you and I to destroy our ability to generate so much holiness, beauty, love, splendor, happiness, and a consciousness of redemption in the atmosphere of our kitchens, dining rooms, living rooms, bedrooms, offices, community centers, in our streets, in our schools, and in our world. You ask, who am I? Who am I to be great? Who am I to make a difference? Who am I to be happy? Who am I to be the most awesome husband, the most awesome father, the greatest mother, the greatest wife, the greatest human being, the greatest Jew? Who are you? What do you mean, who are you? You're a chelikelikamimal? Mamish. What type of question is this, who are you? You are a manifestation of God's light in this world. That's who you are. Don't confuse this with arrogance and pompousness and stupidity and gaiva and superficiality and haughtiness and narcissism. This type of inner dignity actually creates much more humility. Because this is not about me taking my ego seriously and that if you have a different opinion, I have to mow you down like I mow your lawn. This is not about it's about appreciating the fact that you are, who are you for real? Who are you at your core? You're divine light. You're So you represent the one who sent you. So who are you? You're as infinite as the one who sent you. You're wholesome, you're confident, you're happy, you're great, you're beautiful, you're marvelous, you're splendid. And the Rebbe, vintage Lubavitcher Rebbe, says in the next line, and the Baal Shem Tov says, that Shariah ben Avkilis' humility destroyed the Beis HaMikdash. So then, what builds the Beis HaMikdash? What builds holiness in the world? What brings the Shekhinah down into the world? The opposite of Ambasnushish Shariah ben Avkilis. Discovering your inner conviction and your inner voice of how amazing you are because your you in its essence is nothing but the oil of the Ein in this world. That is who you really are. Never about ego. That's what builds Kedusha. I have to tell you, I was reading this and I'm like, wow. The Rebbe identifies here the malady of our generation. The, one of the greatest maladies of our generation is people love saying Lush and horror about themselves. They love believing that they're messed up. It's almost a mitzvah. Oh, you messed up. Just like me. Now let's figure out who messed you up. There's always somebody to blame. You have good mothers and good fathers. And that's why, you know, they say there's three types of Jews. Neurotics, psychotics, and psychiatrists. 
certainly in California, there's not too many more types. <laughs> Present company excluded. I'm not talking about you guys. So somebody asked me, what's the difference? I said, look in Webster. He said, no, I want to hear your definition. I said, the neurotic builds castles in the air. The psychotic lives in those castles. The psychiatrist, he collects the rent from both of them. And the rent is very steep. Often, so many of us identify ourselves as problem cases. Especially those sitting here who did endure abuse. Who did endure trauma. Who did endure dysfunctional families. And if you didn't grow up in a dysfunctional family, you'll never understand what other people go through. And if somebody did not abuse you physically, emotionally, spiritually, you'll never understand it. Baruch Hashem, you'll never understand it. But the Baal Shem Tev is not telling you to deny or repress or make believe it didn't happen or live in La La Land and play dumb and walk around everything is so beautiful. That's nothing to do with the Baal Shem Tev. That was not his perspective. That was not his teaching. When the Baal Shem Tev is saying this, it's coming from the deepest voice. I know that you may have challenges. I know that I may have challenges. Sometimes the challenges are very deep. But don't allow yourself to identify that toxicity as your core. You are infinity and you could contain your challenges. You can contain your problems. Your soul is greater than any problem you might have. Your soul, which is divine, is greater than any trauma you may carry. Your soul is larger than any scar embedded in your psyche, mind, heart, body, or soul. Never for a moment allow the voice that speaks negatively of yourself, that speaks of your bad muzzle, that speaks of your horrible past, that speaks of your horrible family, that speaks of your horrible dysfunctional future. Become the sole voice that dominates the conversation inside here. Never allow addiction to define you. Never allow your disappointments and frustrations and pain to define you. Never allow yourself to really see yourself in terms of this displaced mic. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Let's see. If not, you'll come back. As this loser, as this nobody. I mentioned some chastair. I'll tell you a little story. It's very it's little, but it's profound. It was some chastair once. The Rebbe was given his sefer and he was going to the bimah to dance. He goes to the bimah to dance, and those of you who remember, everybody would kiss. Mwah, mwah. I remember my father told me to always tell the Rebbe, "Is all der leben ibrayor." So that's what I did all the years. You should live. To do it next year. And the Rebbe would always say, Amen gamatim. In simple humility. A little child is telling him you should live to do this next year. He would say, Amen gamatim. 
somebody once kissed a Sefer Torah. And he tells the Rebbe in Yiddish, the Rebbe zon is galavelem. The Rebbe should be revealed. So the Rebbe said, Amen gamata. He was a little taken aback. So the Rebbe saw it and he said, You also have what to reveal. It seems like two separate blessings. You're telling me I should reveal myself. I'm telling you, you also have what to reveal. But friends, it's really the same thing. You want me to reveal myself? You have to reveal yourself. Because what is a Rebbe? What is a Rebbe? A Rebbe essentially is a person who helps each person articulate their own inner godliness, their own inner infinity. A Rebbe is not somebody who plays the game and everybody sits and says, Hey, you're going, you're doing well. Go, 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 go. That's for fans, spectators. A Rebbe is the one who inspires within each and every person their own Rebbe to be able to find within each and every one everyone to be able to discover in themselves who they really are. To go beyond the anvasnusoi I'm small, I'm insignificant, I'm valueless, I'm a nobody just trying to make ends meet. Was bin ich? Wer bin ich? You know how much you have to reveal? Do you know how many potentials lay dormant? Do you know how much, how many resources are there embedded in your soul? Are you going to allow all of the embryos inside of you to experience premature death? Are you going to allow all the possibilities, all the potentials, all the koiches that fill your heart to go unrealized, unactualized? I have to say I was moved by a little anecdote. Shimon Peres was 93 years old when he passed away. Just a few years ago before Rosh Hashanah. So his son, his son says, Abba, what should I write on your tombstone? He says, the man who died prematurely. I liked it. I have to say, I liked it. He was a president for many years. Yeah, he had a Levaya Mamash Azabiraiva Madras Melech, 40, 50 state leaders and presidents and kings came to the cemetery. You realize your potential. Kobe Bryant, Yogi Berra. This is from the East Coast was once asked by his wife a couple of years ago, Yogala, where should I bury you? He says, what's the problem? She says, I have a terrible dilemma. You were born in Missouri. You live in New Jersey, but you play for New York. Where do I bury you? New York, New Jersey, or Missouri. So he says, surprise me. I looked, I saw that line, somebody said that, I said, you know what? 
Can I surprise myself? Can you surprise yourself? Or no more. The greatest tragedy of life is you put yourself into a box and you become predictable. There's a medrash that says that when a person, your medrash goes through how people behave like animals at different stages. Sometimes you're like a dog, donkey and sometimes like a dog and sometimes like a horse. And it says when you get older you become like a monkey. The monkey. He says because monkeys imitate human beings. He says you reach a certain age, you start imitating yourself. This is who I am, and now it's just an imitation. Every day I imitate what I did yesterday. I imitate what I did before. This is who I am. This is my routine. This is when I wake up. This is when I go to sleep. This is how many books I take with me to my night table. How many books do you take with you to your night table before you go to sleep? Okay, you don't have to all answer. This is what I eat. This is what I don't eat. This is who I speak to. This is who I don't speak to. This shul I don't step foot into. This shul I do step foot into. For this for this year I have ADD, for this year I have ADHD, for this year I have PDD, for this year I, I'm ready to die. Which is sometimes a better option. I start imitating myself. This, I already know, I know why Y.Y. Jacobson is. I could read my bio and uh, he said, Rabbi Kessler told me how I could find out about myself. Yeah, a guy was once in the Bahamas on vacation. So he writes a postcard to his therapist. He says, I'm here in the Bahamas, I'm having a great time. I wish you were here to tell me why. <laughs> you know what I mean? We get to know, we get to know ourselves. And you, I just become a copy, a copy. So the Kotzkelepist says, There's no originality anymore. Can you reinvent yourself? Can I reinvent myself? Can I have the courage to align myself with infinity? And what's the definition of infinity? It's never boxed in. It's never predictable. The only thing Judaism says about God. You know the only definition we have for God? You know what it is? It's only one definition. That we have no definition. That's the only definition. So what does it mean to be aligned with God? That you also don't have a definition. Man was carved in the image of God. But I thought God has no image. That's the point. You were carved in the image of God. Meaning you also have no image. Stop being paralyzed. In the quagmire of your image. This person I could speak to. This person I have to be in a fight with. Which means till the Chavra Kaddusha come. <laughs> surprise yourself. If Mrs. Yogi can surprise herself, you can't. What's the Nakuda of every Maimin Chsidis? Surprise yourself. You're eight safe, you're infinite. Don't be so predictable. Shock yourself. Shock me. Shock your spouse. Try, try tonight. She's used to that. <laughs> Let some of the other guys do that. 
Yeah! She's also used to that with you. Reb Nachman of Breslov once said, what's the difference between giving a speech and singing a song? He said, when you give a speech and somebody else starts talking, it's called interruption, which is the minig by Eden, <laughs> to interrupt, especially Anshay Shlomayni v'chuli v'chuli. What happens when you sing a song and somebody starts singing? It's called harmony. So he said, the purpose of life is to stop talking. And to start singing. Because people who talk, the whole world is interrupting them. Always. People who sing, the whole world is harmonizing with them. I would just add that there are people that even when they sing, they're speaking. And there are people, even when they speak, they're singing. But you can actually try it out. When you come home at night, never speak. Only sing. Okay? So you come home and your wife says... You were supposed to be home three hours ago. You don't answer with speaking, only singing. Good evening, good evening, how are you? I'm so sorry that I am late. Now what is she going to say? I could never trust you. I should have listened to my mother. Yes, you probably should. I'm a chayet. It's all over. In life, you have to learn how to sing, not speak. Even when you're speaking, let the world harmonize with you. How do you let the world harmonize with you? When you uproot anvasnusoy shoschayet ben afkilas. When you realize who you are, you can every moment identify with your identity as a reflection of infinity in this world. So all the voices that tell me, with this person I can't make up, this person I can't say I'm sorry to because I'm going to feel bruised. Because I got into an argument with my wife yesterday, which followed an argument the day before, which followed an argument for the last 29 and a half years. Therefore, today we have to continue the argument. That's not how infinity speaks. That's how slavery speaks. That's how fear speaks. That's how insecurity speaks. That's how trauma speaks. Identify with another voice in yourself, my dearest friends. And then you'll build base amikdashes wherever you go. You'll become a Beis You'll become a conduit of elikus, of truth, of justice, of kindness, of compassion, of light. This doesn't mean we don't fall, doesn't mean we don't stumble, it doesn't mean we're not confused. It does mean that we can identify the confusion, we can identify the pain, we can identify the insecurity, and then choose to align ourselves with infinity and act from that space. And if it's not enough to live with, comes the Rebbe in the next piece of Bosti Legami Tavshinchov and shares a teaching of the Maggid of Mizrich. And it's in the middle of this teaching that the Rebbe choked up with a lot of tears and great emotion as he shared this teaching of the Maggid. And I ask you to open your hearts and ask God to allow me to be a conduit for this teaching of the great Maggid 
of Mizrich, communicated in that Bossi Lagani 1960, says the Magid. It says in Parshas B'Shalach, Vayira, Vayar, Vayoysha Hashem, Vayoymahu, as Yisrael Miad Mitzrayim, Vayar Yisrael, Mitzrayim, 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 Vayiru Amis Hashem, Vayaminu B'Hashem, Abu Moshe Avdai. They saw God, they believed in God and in Moshe. Says the Mechilta in Parshas B'Shalach. B'Mitzrayim, Nidma HaKadosh Baruch Hu Lahem Kenar. Biyam, Nidma Lahem Kebochur. B'Sinai, Nidma Lahem Kezokim. When they left Egypt, the Rebbeinu Shalolam appeared like a little child. That's what he looked like. At the sea, at the Yamsuf, he looked like a nar. Not an infant, but a young man. A boy, a teenager, a young adult. By Mitzrayim, a baby. By the Yam, a boche. Sinai, they came to Mount Sinai. Nidmolehem Kezaki. Now Hashem looked like an old man. Asks the Magid. I don't understand. At Sinai, Moshe said, No image, no statue, no picture, no figure. How does a Mechilta say this? Mechilta is Rabbi Shmuel. Or Mechilta is Mechilta de Rashbi. You're dealing with the greatest of the Tamoyim. Mechilta is one of the earliest sources of Teresha Balpeh that we have before Mishnah, before Gemara. Mechilta to Rabbi Shmuel. What does the Mechilta mean? Where is some Kaltmona? The question of the Maggit. What's the answer of the Maggit? So the truth is, the answer of the Maggit is a very, very deep answer, extremely deep. It's actually the essence of the Maim Rabbasi Lagani 1960. It's the nucleus of the atom, it's the nucleus of the Maim. The way I understand it. I'm going to try to extract one point of the Magad and present it in a way that I think will be at least somewhat understandable. The way I understood it, Lufiani is that. The Magad gives an extraordinary metaphor. The metaphor is the Magad, it's not my metaphor. And the Magad says, parents, who are healthy and functional, normal and loving, they carry in their minds an image of their children. We all know you're sitting on a train, you're sitting on a bus, you're driving in your car, you're shopping in a store, you're sitting at your office, you're sitting right here, and suddenly you see your two-year-old. You're hoping that he's sleeping. But of course, if you left him with, you know who, I'm not sure he's probably eating Cheerios. (laughs) But you see, you see, and you smile inside. And you give a little tefillah, like you just, you know, you you love, you you kiss him in your own mind. This happens constantly. Because our children are engraved. (laughs) The image of a son, the image of a daughter is engraved in the psyche, in the consciousness of a father and a mother. Constantly. Sometimes I'm not actively thinking about it, but so often, especially you go on a trip, you're sitting on the plane, and in your mind, you see each one of your children. And you see every feature of their body. You see their forehead. You see their temples. You see their ears. You see their neck. You see their torso. 
You see their arms, you see their legs. And the maggot says, when your child is one years old, that's who you see in your mind. And when your child is six years old, that's who you see in your mind. And when your child is 17 years old, keeping you up at night, that's who you see in your mind all night. And you don't say, oh, I see a two-year-old. It's nice to do that. But you see the 17-year-old. And when your child is 46 years old, that's who you see in your mind. In the words of the maggot, Kshoh Kotten, Hatsir Hu Kotten, Kshoh Gadol, Nechkeko Hatsir Shogadlus. This is exactly how it is. And if you're a father and a mother, you don't uproot this image. You don't want to. Even if you want to, you can't. It's my son. It's my daughter. Now I have to quote. Yodua ki It says in Medrash Rabbah that a Jew ascended in God's thought. Pirush. Shem tomid nech kokim b'machshovel yoyne k'moyshah ben chokuk b'machshoves oviv. Every Jew is always engraved. In God's consciousness, like a child is engraved in Tati and Mommy's consciousness. Says the Magid, I imagine my child the way he or she is at that age, at that state. Sometimes the child is healthy, child is gorgeous, child is beautiful, child is after a bath. You know your two-year-old is after a bath, he's tired, the terrorism finished for the night, the ice cream was put away, the kitchen is clean, Baruch Hashem is exhausted, it's only one o'clock in the morning. He's fresh out of the bath. You put him in the bed. Ah, amalach. Okay, tomorrow terrorism will return. But, but for the night, amalach. You know, after that bath, after that shower, you manage to shampoo him. Of course, you had to buy him his own iPhone for that and his own, his own computer and a private yacht and a private jet and a Tesla, etc., so now going for Afikoyman's at the age of three and four. But fine. Beautiful. You go to your bedroom and that's what you see. You see that in there. But sometimes, not all the fathers know it. A child, you know, he, uh, he defecates. And sometimes a child is chalila, chalila, unhealthy. And sometimes a child is hooked up with wires. Sometimes a child is hospitalized. Sometimes a child is having a difficulty, an impediment, a disability. Disability in the mind, a disability in the body. A father and mother don't start imagining a different child. The child they would like. No, no. You imagine this child. Says the Magid, a Jew is always engraved in Hashem's mind. And the Rebbe teaches, why does he use the word engraved? If he would have used the word written, I write with ink on parchment. 
the ink is added to the parchment. It's not the parchment. But when you say something is engraved, when you engrave words in a stone, it's the stone itself. You say a Jew is engraved in Hashem. Engraved means it's Hashem's essence. It's in Hashem's essence. What type of Jew is engraved? If the Jew is small, small. If he's big, big. If he's clean, clean. If he's dirty, dirty. If he's healthy, healthy. And if he's chalila, unhealthy, unhealthy. Sometimes there's a Jew who's spiritually and morally beautiful. And sometimes there's a Jew who's struggling. He's struggling with bad habits. He's struggling with promiscuity. He's struggling with immorality. She's struggling with her own trauma or toxicity. I'm struggling because of my failures, my mistakes, my sins, my transgressions. Says the Magid. But the Rebbeiner Shalom's mind is filled with this Jew. So what happens? So what happens? If my image, the way I am, is engraved in Hashem, that becomes what Hashem looks like. God becomes a mirror of His child. And that's why the Pasuk says, the Pasuk says in Yeshaya, Perek Dalet, Imrochatz Hashem es tzoyaz Sometimes Hashem washes, he cleanses, he bathes his daughter from the tzoya, from the dirt, from the excrement. Taiches the magid. And this is where the Rebbe choked up. The whole world taiches. Hashem bathes the child. Kivayachal Hashem Yisbarach. Reichetz es atzmai. Mitzoyaz b'nois tziyayin. L'fishayu chakukim b'machshavta kivayachal. Hashem has to bathe himself. He has to clean himself from the tzaya of his child because the excrement of his child, I'm quoting the Magid, becomes Hashem. Because my baby is engraved in me with everything that he has, with everything that she is, including the tzaya, the filth. So Hashem has to bathe and clean himself. That's my because it becomes him. It becomes engraved because he never ever separates. He never ever detaches. I never say, my kid made in the pampers. Now I'm sending him for adoption for a week. When they clean him up, I take him back into my house and in my mind. That's the greatest tragedy. You never ever sever the connection, the connection with a child. So who does Hashem have to bathe? He could do something simple. He could say, you're not my child. Get out of my head. I'm not getting dirty with you. He can't do that. This is who I am. I am my child. My child is me. My child is clean. I'm clean. My child is filthy. I now have to wash myself. And I'm proud of it. Because the alternative is much more painful. The alternative is, I amputate my essence. And you never forgive yourself. You never forgive yourself for this. What an extraordinary, what an extraordinary teaching in parenting, in education. Those of us who are parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, friends, teachers, Pedagogues, mentors, mechanchim, mashpiim, rosh yeshivas. What a lesson. I was a little while ago in a community 
a large community in America, beautiful community for Shal Shabbos. And I spoke about this theme. And I said, look, the child is causing the father and mother a lot of pain. The father and mother could say, emotionally, you're not my child. I can't look at you. Your child comes on, you go upstairs. You don't want to face the pain. It's too painful. So you detach. God does not do that. His own because this becomes part of who I am because the alternative is infinitely more painful than I said. There are children who cause their parents a lot of agony and a lot of pain. But separation is not an option. Cutting off a child, throwing out a child from your home, in 99% of cases is not an option because the alternative is hell. A father came over to me. It's a word in the dictionary. You can look it up. A father came over to me after. He was sobbing. He asked to talk to with me in a room, a corner of the room. And he said, why didn't you give this lecture 30 years ago? I said, 30 years ago, I was still wearing my own pampers. <laughs> well, almost. I said, why? Heart-wrenching story. 30 years ago, he had a teenage boy. The teenage boy left Yiddishkeit. Dropped out of school, left Yiddishkeit. He went to consult somebody who he thought his voice is the voice of God. And the man said, you make an ultimatum, either he does X, Y, and Z, if not, you throw him out of the house. He told me I'm a Balchuva. It didn't feel right, but as a Balchuva, I was taught to obey. Now here I'm gonna do a parenthesis and get myself a little in trouble. One of the big mistakes that us rabbis, teachers, and mentors make is, that we often don't empower Bali Tshuva to trust their own judgment and their own feelings. You're never allowed to allow your return to Judaism to cause you to lose your individual personality and just follow people blindly. Mama knows best. Papa knows best. It's good to get advice. It's good to get feedback. But when something feels wrong, make sure you scrutinize the situation very well before you follow like a blind sheep. It's a terrible thing. I see talented, creative people with great personalities. They return to the from Jewish world and somehow they become social conformists because they want to fit in and their entire oomph and personality is lost. It's a terrible mistake. It should never be. Back to my discussion. He tells me I didn't feel right, but I told my son, unless you change X, Y, Z, I'm going to change the locks in the house. You can't come home anymore. He says, 30 years, I haven't spoken to my son. 30 years, he hasn't come home. A few years ago, he married a non-Jew. He severed every last tie with the family. 30 years, I didn't even have a telephone conversation with my son. 30 years ago, I thought I was doing the right thing. I tell you now something. For 30 years, I did not sleep one night. 
for 30 years I regret that statement I told my child. Why didn't you give this lecture 30 years ago? I'm not talking about telling your son, you know, maybe it's time to get a job and stop eating mommy's food and become independent and all that. That's a good thing. I'm talking about throwing your child out of your life, severing the relationship. A few months ago, there was a Jew who passed away. His name was Rabdavid Frank. Rabdavid Frank was a teacher for 50 years in New Jersey. Delaford, New Jersey. So they were, he passed away in July. It's past July, in the summer. So at the Shiva, one of the students shared a story. And he said he was in high school. Rabdavid Trank was his teacher. And he completely did not believe in Judaism anymore. And he was a troublemaker. So what did he do? He decided Friday night, he wants to go have fun. And he knew that Abdovich Shrank's car is in the parking lot of the yeshiva. He broke into his office. He took his keys. 10 o'clock at night after the meal. He went into the car. And a friend of his said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to the movie theater. He said, take me along. He says, no, I'm sinning for myself. I'm not sinning for you. Take me along. If you don't take me along, I'm going to get you in trouble. He says, what are you going to do? I'll get you thrown out of yeshiva. He says, that's actually a good thing. Because <laughs> I'm doing nothing here. It's not a bad thing. Get me thrown out of this crazy place. It's Friday night. He takes the car. He goes to the movie theater. This other boy, I guess, delivered his promise. He goes to Rabdavid Trank's home. And he says, Plainly Almighty, this tzaddik broke into your office on Shabbos, broke the lock, took your keys, went into your car, stole your car, and he went to the movie theater. Rabdavid Frank said, where is this movie theater? Where is it? He said, it's two miles from here. What's the address? How do I get there? This boy was a shtickle bucky bishas. I mean, he was uh, a shtickle knowledgeable in some stuff. So he told him exactly how to get there. Apparently he had experience. It was winter. It's a Friday winter night in New Jersey. It's not Los Angeles, my friends. It's called the East Coast. You could come for a visit. January. MetLife Stadium. See Mashas. Freezing. 90,000 people freezing. And I wasn't inside with the spare ribs and the french fries and the ketchup. I had to sit with the rabbis. We don't get food. We're jealous. We have to behave. New Jersey. January. It's cold. And it was one of those cold New York, New Jersey nights of January. You remember when you used to live in the East Coast? You remember those days? I don't know, the good old days, but certainly the cold old days. He takes his coat. This boy says, Rebbe, Rebbe, where are you going? I'm going to the movie theater. He says, why? I want to go. He goes, he walks. He walks to the movie theater. Two miles, Friday night freezing. Comes into the movie theater, he had a big black hat, as a yeshiva yeshiva hat, with a kapota, a long black kapota. He comes into the movie theater, it wasn't exactly the expected sight, Friday night. He goes over to the woman selling the tickets. He says, listen, I'm a rabbi. I don't go to the movies on Shabbos, certainly not. I don't have any money. I don't want to watch a film. I'm not buying a ticket. 
But I have somebody very close to me who's in one of the theaters, and I need to speak to them. Would you allow me to go in for a few minutes? I'm not sitting down to watch a movie. I'll be out in a few minutes. She says, Rabbi, I trust you. Go ahead. So he goes. Now he has to start finding a lot of movies that weekend, Baruch Hashem. And he has to go from auditorium, from hall, movie, from one theater to another theater, another room, and it's pitch dark. And a lot of people. It's a nice Friday night weekend in New Jersey, and he's going one to one, he's searching and scrutinizing. Hayele de Nendo. Finally, he comes to one of the theater halls, goes in, standing in the back. He's looking and looking and looking up, and his eyes fall on the sight of that boy who seemed like his Talmud. He was actually sitting alone. He goes over. He sits down. It's the middle of a movie. You don't say a word. <laughs> Nobody speaks then. They have respect. <laughs> Nobody speaks. If you eat popcorn, you do it quietly. If you drink Coca-Cola, you don't slurp so loud. It's not a kiddish. It's a movie. Is there a heritage in America? You have to have your priorities straight. You have to know what you believe in, what you don't believe in. Where you're silent, where you speak. Ecclesiastes told us. So silently, Rebdova Trank sits down near this boy. He sits down, doesn't say a word. You know, when you, somebody is sitting near you, even if they don't touch you, you suddenly feel the energy. You feel your end energy. So at some point, he feels that there's somebody near him. He takes a look. The Rosh Hashiva, the Choyda, the Yatsma, his Rebbe is sitting right near with a kapota, with a big hat, sitting there. He gives us, Rebbe, what are you doing here, Rav Trank? What are you doing here? I came to visit you. He says, how'd you get here? I walked. It's two miles. I walked two miles. Why'd you walk? I wanted to talk to you. What do you want to talk to me about? I wanted to tell you that in this theater, the popcorn has a question with kashos. <laughs> That's it. So I'm going to ask you a favor. Don't eat the popcorn in this theater. That's it. That's it I'm asking you. The popcorn here is a problem. He gets up and he walks out. He says, where are you going? I got to go home. He walks out. He's in the street. He starts walking home. A minute later, he turns around, the boy is near him. I'm coming home with you. He says, we walk home two miles. Not a word about the car. Not a word about Shabbos. Not a word about the keys. Not a word about driving. Not a word about the movie theater. He's singing. Two miles, he's singing the Gunim, Zmiris. He was a joke, he's a funny guy. He's taking, telling jokes, telling stories, schmoozing. I had the fun of my life. We had a blast. Two miles just joking around, singing. It was already close to the middle of the night. It was a long walk. It was cold. He said, but I wasn't cold. I felt my teacher's warmth. He says, we came home. We came back. We came back to the yeshiva. He says, never ever did I eat again non-kosher popcorn. <laughs> Never ever did I steal a car again. Never did I break into his office again. And never did I violate Shabbos again. 
Rochatz Hashem es Tsoyas Benoist Tsiyayin. God never detaches from a Jew, ever. I, I look at myself, I'm dirty, and I'm taka filthy. God says, you know what? As long as you're dirty, I'm dirty with you. I have no choice. This is the market. Now listen to the Rebbe's addition. Ah! Says the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Now you'll understand what the Pasuk says in Shmuel Beis. Nobody will be lost forever. Now you understand what the Gemara says in Masech Tesyum, Medaf Peivov, Amud Beis. That ultimately, Zdoyna is Nasa like Zachias. All sins become mitzvahs. How? Why? How? So this is what he explained. How can you say, how can Rishlokish say, Zdoyna is Nasa like Zachias? The answer is, and I have to say this is quite daring and revolutionary, but it's one of the fundamental teachings of Chassidus, of the Baal Shem Tev and the Magad, and their students throughout the generations that the Rebbe was articulating here. If a Jew is one with Hashem's essence, so a Jew is engraved in Hashem's consciousness, so whatever I am and whatever I look like becomes divine. And God mirrors me. You know why he mirrors me? Because he mirrors me back to myself. Because my image becomes his image. He assumes who I am. Says the Rebbe, if that's the case, it means that whatever I am is eternal. Because if it's engraved in God's essence, it's not going anywhere. God is not mortal. What if I'm dirty? It means that my dirt is eternal. It somehow got engraved in Hashem's essence. But one more thing. Hashem's essence is good. So it means my dirt is eternal. But my dirt also must become good. Because it's in God's essence. So at some point, what I see as dirt, what I see as my mistakes, as my sins, as my failure, as my loneliness, as my pain, as my trauma, will be transformed and metamorphosized into divinity, into the stuff of the divine. And it also means something else. It means, like the Bardichev says from the Baal Shem Tev, Hashem Tzilcha, God is your shadow. What is a shadow? A shadow follows you. We create our reality. We create the divine reality. Ah, by Mitzrayim, Hashem looked like a child, a baby. At the Yamsov, a teenager. At Har Sinai, an elderly statesman. I thought God has no image. Says the Magid, when the Jews left Egypt, they were infants. They were infants. The Yecheskel says, Yitzhiyah's time is birth. You saw an infant came out of the womb of its mother. A little, little baby. That's the image in Hashem's essence. So what does Hashem look like? A baby. An infant. Because God is a reflection of me, because I'm one with them. At the Amsuf, they were more mature. He was a Nar. At Har Sinai, Matan the Jews reached a state of Zokin Zeshekonachachma. God now reflects that image back to them. I create Kivayochel, the godliness around me. 
I create not only my relationship with Hashem, Hashem responds to my energy, to my attitude, to my perspectives, to my experience. It's mamish like a mirror. It's a shadow. What you show in the mirror, you will see. I could stand in front of the mirror and say, I'm a dirty infant. That's exactly what I'll see. I could stand in front of the mirror and realize that exactly what I am, God is experiencing. And the moment you realize that, that's the beginning of all healing. That's the beginning of all redemption. That's the meaning of that famous expression, Dira Betachtainen. He lives in the lowliest element of reality with his entire essence, in your heart, in your reality, because there's never a concept of detachment. Rochatz Hashem! So, my dearest friends, this is the title of the Baal Shem Tev. This is the title of the Magid. What does this mean for you and me? Tonight, a few days, just a little more than a week, before Yud Shvat, Tovshin pay, Yutzvat, 70 years. I think one thing it means is you could make a nice decision. You could do a good thing. You should do good things. You should do a lot of good things. We should all do a lot, a lot of good things. But I think behind all that, one must be able to start defining themselves in a new way. One must discover inside themselves the extraordinary power, potential, ability, resources that I have. Do not allow the voices that play in your mind 24 hours a day, depriving you of the one greatest truth about your life, and that is that you are always, 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 even when you are in the thicket of failure, and even when you have just made big mistakes, that you are always aligned with infinity, that you are always embedded in God's essence, that God's essence is embedded in you, that your true essence is nothing but the divine light in this world. And therefore, at every moment, I have to make a choice. Am I now living from a place of alignment with infinity, or am I living in a place, in a cocoon, Defined by narrowness, pettiness, fears, insecurities, toxicities, and that's where I am living from. Am I contributing to Churban with my Anova, or am I contributing to Binyin? Number two, it's your image that defines much of reality. You know the old saying, whether you believe you can, or whether you believe you can't, 
you're probably right. Life is often a self-fulfilling prophecy. I believe I can't. I can't. That's the image I show. That's the image God experiences in himself. That becomes my God. That becomes my reality. That becomes my Abishter. I can't. I'm paralyzed. I'm stuck. I'm miserable. Or your life could be a different type of prophecy. Of course I can. God can't. I just work for God. And God says, okay, now we're on the same page. And the Maggid says, but even if you say you can't, God ultimately will transform that too. But what do you have to wait? Number three, when I can cultivate this, my attitude with people is different. You come home to your spouse, you come home to your children, come home to your husband, to your wife. You come to work, you go to shul, you meet people here, there. Conversations, emails, texts, whatsapps, encounters on every level. You become an ambassador. An ambassador of what? Of love. Of light, of hope, of healing, of redemption. Number four, never detach from your loved ones because it's painful. Never detach from yourself because it's painful. Never ever detach from any of these people, including yourself. You don't have to detach. You can hold on to it. You want to hold on to it. Hold on to it with tenderness, with love, and with care. And then there is hope that all the excrement will be wiped away, will be cleansed. Just as Hashem does it, He holds on to it. And He cleanses it. We must do the same. Hold on to your loved ones. Hold on tight. And if it's difficult, it only means you have to hold on tighter, not looser. If it's difficult, you hold on tighter. Ah! So, some of you remember this Jew. Also lived in New Jersey. His name was Herbert Weiner. Herbert Weiner was a reform rabbi. He had a very big reform congregation in New Jersey. The 1950s, he started to research Jewish mysticism, Kabbalah. He went to meet many mystics, contemporary mystics. One of them lived in Brooklyn, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. His encounters with these mystics from all segments of Jewry, he recorded in a magnificent book entitled Nine and a Half Mystics. Of course, there were nine, and then there's the half a mystic, who's he himself. Herbert Weiner in 1955 came knocking at the doors of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, spent hours with the Rebbe and recorded much of the conversation in the book Nine and a Half Mystics. Fabulous book, fabulous conversations, extraordinarily enlightening on both sides. He started to come to the Rebbe's Fabrenius. Yutas Kislev, 1957, he came to the Fabrenian of the Rebbe in honor of Yat Kislev. And at that Fabrenian, the Rebbe told a story, a remarkable story. What was the story? When the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, was in prison, a Christian minister 
from the government, from the Tsarist government, came into his cell and asked him questions on the Hebrew Bible because this was part of their investigations of the Balatani of the Alter Rebbe. And he asked a famous question after Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge. God tells Adam, Ayeka, where are you? Did Hashem not know where Adam is? Ayeka, where are you? So the Alter Rebbe said, Rashi asks the question. He tells the Rebbe in Russian, I know what Rashi says. I want to hear what you have to say. So the Rebbe says to him, the Alter Rebbe says, do you believe that the Torah is timeless and eternal? He says, yes. So the Alter Rebbe says, if so, I'll explain it to you. The question of God to Adam and Eve is a question that God continuously asks every human being, not geographically, but existentially. Ayeka, where are you? You are alive for so many and so many years. And the Alter Rebbe said the number of years that this minister was then, that his age. I think it was like 54, if I'm not mistaken. Somewhere there. You're alive 54 years. So God asks you every day, where are you? Have you fulfilled your mission in this world? Are you fulfilling your mission in this world? I have given you time, energy, resources, vitality, wisdom, a soul, a consciousness. What are you doing with your life? Are you making the difference you have to make? That's the question. The man was blown away by the answer and he left the cell. Says the Rebbe that he heard from his father-in-law. Who heard from his father. Who heard from his father, who heard from his father, who heard from the Alter Rebbe himself. That this exchange saved his life. Why? He says, I was sitting in the cell and suddenly I experienced extraordinary pleasure from one fact. Some of you may not understand what I'm going to say now, but maybe one day you'll understand. It's fine if you don't understand. I was sitting in the cell and I experienced a moment of infinite ecstasy from one fact, that I had a schus, I had the privilege to sacrifice my entire life for the teachings of the Balshanta. Because the only reason the Alter Rebbe was thrown into prison was because of those who opposed the teachings of the Baal Shem Tev articulated brilliantly and systematically through Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi. That I had the privilege to sit in prison and suffer for the Baal Shem Tev and his teachings. Ah, I never felt so connected to the truth. Alter Rebbe says, you know what happens when you feel a pleasure that is infinite? Your body can't contain it. It's like electricity. The voltage is too intense for the wire. And I felt like I'm about to melt away in God's bosom. Like Derechayim describes Nodav and Aviyu's death and kissing God in Parshas Achare Mois. And then this minister walked in. And he asks me this question about Ayaka. And I told him that Hashem asks every Jew, where are you? Have you fulfilled your mission? And then I said to myself, and Hashem is asking me, also Ayeka, where are you? Are you fulfilling your mission? Who asked you to die? Who asked you to come up to heaven? Who asked you to melt away in ecstasy? 
You have to build the world. You have to be Mashiach in the world. And you know what happened? I calmed down. I came back. His question, Ayeka, saved my life. This the Rebbe said publicly, Yutes Kislev Tavshin Yerches, and explained the story at length with a lesson. Who was at the Fabrenga? Herbert Weiner, a reform rabbi. After Yutes Kislev, he sat down and he penned a letter to the Lubavitcher. And you know what he wrote in the letter? He said, I listened to your sermon, to your presentation. Forgive me, I have a question. Do you, Rabbi Schneerson, do you ask yourself the question, Ayaka? And if yes, I would love to know how you answer it. Are you fulfilling your mission? Are you fulfilling your purpose? Are you doing what you're doing what God wants from you? Forgive my audacity, my chutzpah, but I'm very intrigued. Do you ask the question? And how will you, how do you answer? The Rebbe wrote him back a long letter about different issues he raised in the letter, in his letter. At the end, the Rebbe addressed his question with Ayaka. I saw the letter, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, so I don't remember it verbatim. But the theme I remember very well because it, it became engraved in me. I'm not telling you verbatim the answer, but I'm telling you the theme of the answer. You asked me if I ask myself Ayeka, the answer is every day. I told you you'll come back. Every day I ask myself Ayeka, every day. Now you want to know how I answer the question. And I'll tell you how I answer the question. To be able to answer Ayeka, you have to identify who you are, what your role is, what your mission is. You have to also identify, first and foremost, what God wants from you. You have to ask yourself what Hashem wants from you in this world. When you realize, as some people do, that what God wants from them primarily is to transcend their own needs and to become leaders to help, uplift, invigorate, and inspire and teach others. Then, your essential question of Ayeka is concerning your primary mission in life. Ayeka always has to address your primary mission in life. What is happening with that mission? And when you're a leader, the question must address first and foremost your facet of leadership. Are you doing your job as a leader? Are you successful as a leader? Are you indeed inspiring and uplifting the world you were sent to uplift? Yes or no? That's your first question of Ayeka. What is happening with your primary shlichus mission, which is leadership? The Rebbe said, and therefore, and therefore, because that is my primary question that I ask myself, Ayeka, 
I have to be very blunt with you and tell you, I cannot answer the question. The only one who can answer my question of Ayeka is you. You're the only one who could tell me where I am. If I would be a private individual, I would be responsible only to me. But as providence has put me where he put me, my real question of Ayaka could only be answered by you, Mr. Weiner, and I await your response. It was the last circus that the Rebbe ever spoke in public. Sukkis 91. I had this chus to be one of the chayzrim, one of the oral scribes of the Rebbe in those last years. And I still remember the moment. I could see it with my eyes. I could hear it with my ears. The Rebbe is standing by the stender. I was maybe, I don't know, three feet away. And he said words. I was a young, I was a yeshiva bacher. They shocked me then. And I still remember telling a friend, this is strange. And the Rebbe said that the Tzemach Tzedek had seven sons. One died in his lifetime. One chose not to be a Rebbe. Five became Rebbes after he passed away. The youngest became the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe Maharaj. But when his father-in-law wrote their biography, he wrote on each one, Kvoit Kedushas, including those who were not, was not his grandfather. They were other branches of Hasidim. He wrote, And there's a lesson he wanted to teach people. And that is, and I quote, As their titul, Admur, is Shayach The title, Rebbe, can be held by everybody. And the end, on When you hear such a line, you ought to start trembling. How can I say such a thing? Whoever said such a thing? The title Admur for every individual? <laughs> Suddenly, yet the Tom Spaghetti and Harry's I mean, woe that day. Woe for that day. Understand? <laughs> I rebbe. I mean, we know who we are. Nice Jews, Gracie. And he said, you don't have to tremble. Because in the Nusach of Yehi Ratzim, that we say on Yom Tif, we just said on Sukkot, what do we say? Everybody asks that the verses about Mashiach, Isaiah 11, should be conferred on me. Be yiskayim bonu on me. On me should rest the spirit of God. Ruach Eitzadur. The Rebbe changed the subject. He moved on to the next subject. I was reviewing the talk after. And I told an older colleague, who was one of the people who would review the talks. I said, you ever heard the Rebbe should say this? The title Rebbe is applicable to everybody. The title Jew, the title Chassid, the Rebbe. Whoever heard of this? 
found it very, very difficult to understand. And the Rebbe himself acknowledged, he said, I know people will tremble, but that's how it is. A few years ago, I was listening to somebody talking about the Rebbe, and I didn't like what they were saying. <laughs> Why? I had a flashback. You know you have a flashback sometimes? I'm standing there in 770, and I'm listening to the Rebbe saying this. And then I realized this was the last sukkah the Rebbe spoke. In many ways, it was his final will and testament. And what was he saying? He was saying, Dear Jews, I'm going to share something with you very powerful, life-changing, history-changing, world-changing. And that is, there's going to be a new mission now. And you know what your mission is going to be? I want each and every individual to become a Rebbe. What does this mean? Come on. I'm going to start asking everybody if I should do a surgery, if I should get married, if I should do this. What does this mean? Everybody's going to become an Ashamadatzilis. Bittel to Ein Soif. A Rebbe. It means that now is a time when everyone is empowered. Not to speak about the Rebbe. Not to tell stories about the Rebbe. Not to tell me how great the Rebbe was and is. Not to extol the virtues of the Rebbe ad infinitum. Not to tell me an anecdote, a story, a miracle, a vart, a teaching, a gewaldic, a moifus. Yes, say it, great, awesome. But you're missing the point. Something else, you know what? You know now? I want you to become a stickle Rebbe. You become a conduit for the Rebbe. You think like the Rebbe thought. You live like the Rebbe lived. You relate to life like the Rebbe related to life. You become a living embodiment of the Rebbe's perspective, the Rebbe's soul. By the Rebbe's heart, pounded with Avas Yisrael, you be that Rebbe. When you walk into a room, what walks in? A conduit for the Rebbe. What does it mean, a conduit for the Rebbe? A conduit for a Jew who saw himself as an absolute ambassador of Hashem. As somebody whose entire reality was an expression of Hashem's oneness. You know what the power of the Rebbe was? That he had nothing. That he had no power. That he saw himself as a conduit for Hashem, nothing else. When we speak about the Rebbe, we're often speaking about the wrong person. Because if you don't understand what a Rebbe is, if you speak about the Rebbe as the Rebbe, the Rebbe, the Rebbe, the Rebbe, the Rebbe, you don't know who the Rebbe is. <laughs> the Rebbe's whole metzius is bittel Hashem. You know why that's so important? Because if you understand this, then everyone is a little Rebbe. Everyone is aligned with infinity. Everyone has that energy inside of them. Now you have to reveal it. I have to reveal it. Become that Admur. When people talk to you, when people hear you, when people converse with you, when you come home, who should be walking into the house? Who should be walking into the office? Who should be walking into shul? Who should be walking in the street? A piece of Avas Hashem, a piece of Avas a piece of Avas Yisrael. 
my mind, my heart, my soul, my mouth, my facilities, my resources, my kaifas, could and must become conduits for the infinite light of God. In other words, instead of talking about the Rebbe, I and you become that person. You live that person. This is harder work than talking about the Rebbe. It's much easier to stand up and say, I'm going to tell you now 35 miracles that happened with the Rebbe. Great. That's easy. So you're going to give another eulogy for the Rebbe on your chart? So you're going to tell me that he was such a big tzaddik and his Avis Yisrael knew no bounds? Let me tell you a bigger miracle! A miracle miracles that your Avis Yisrael should be able to transcend your ego and pettiness and insecurity. That my Avis Yisrael should be able to transcend my ego and pettiness and insecurity. That's a much bigger miracle! That the Rebbe's Hashkofer should become mine. I should breathe it, live it, embody it in my thoughts, words, actions, soul, perspective, consciousness. Today, the word Admur must become individual. Your children look at you. Don't tell them stories about the Rebbe. Be that story. Make that story. Let that story be vivid and real in your life. Don't put it on the Rebbe. Put it inside here. How do you do that? You do it through three things. You do it, number one, through real learning. You don't learn intellectual things. You learn relevance. You learn things and you internalize them. You learn a teaching of the Baal Shem Tif, You learn a teaching of the Magad. You make it yours. I make it mine. You learn and it becomes yours. It becomes your perspective. You live it. Number two. We don't like talking about this so much. We have to work on ourselves. Not on other people. On ourselves. The Rebbe once had a Fabreng in Simchas He looks at the crowd and he says... The schwerste, eine von the schwerste Sachen in Leben is to mevarer sein, the egen amidus. One of the hardest things in life is to change your personality, to work on your issues. He looked up at the crowd and he said, Proof the size, but there's Try it out, you'll see I'm right. I say to you and to me, work on one middle. You have a temper, you have an ego from here to China, your insecurity goes from here all the way down to the abyss, to South Africa. Work on it. Work on your relationships. Work on your life. Work on your heart. Work on yourself. Have the courage to surprise yourself, to reinvent yourself. Challenge yourself. People call themselves... Chabad chassidim, what does it mean to be a Chabad chassid? In my mind, it means to be a Chabad chassid. You wake up every morning and you say, how am I going to surprise myself today? What am I going to do not to imitate yesterday? I had a Zayd, his name was Abger Shember Pahare. 
The Rebbe used to quote that every night he would go to sleep and he would say, Gershom Ber, Morgan, Tomorrow I'm not going to imitate myself. It reinvent, I have to be able to reinvent myself. Challenge myself. Become infinite. Don't be in a box. It's Torah. Avoid that. That's what davening is. You reinvent yourself. And the third thing is influence. Give. Teach. Share. Uplift. Empower. As you empower others, you become empowered. As you inspire others, you become inspired. As you become a giver, you're elevated to a new place. And then you and I become little admurs, conduits for the great light that the Rebbe brought into the world, continues to bring into the world. And then, and then, only then, can we help the Rebbe answer his question. Ayeka. Only then can you and I help him answer the question. Ayeka. The Rebbe's success only means one thing. The Rebbe's leadership only means one thing. It means that something in my animal consciousness and something in my ego changed. That something new is born inside of me. That's the only thing that can answer his question of Ayeko. Thank you very much. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.